0: There's different kinds of, of privilege that we can talk about, but one is historical privilege, you know, that we're a lot more privileged than our grandparents, and that our grandkids will be more privileged than we can ever imagine, mm-hmm. unless they're le- eating the, the dirty crusts of us using all their fossil fuels. Fingers crossed that we'll, uh, we won't ruin the world before yeah. we're done exploring it. <coughs> Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode explores the concept of digital nomadism, a travel trend that emphasizes global mobility and location-independent work that can be done from almost anywhere in the world. Digital nomadism has boomed in the years since my book Vagabonding first came out. And it was because of Vagabonding that filmmakers Wade Shepard and Anna Von Petersdorf interviewed me for their documentary film, The Nomads, which offers a deep dive into the lives of digital nomads around the world. What you'll hear in this episode are select excerpts from that interview, and since the documentary is still a work in progress, the filmmakers are actually looking for more people to interview about the digital nomad lifestyle. So if by chance you are a current, former, or future digital nomad, you can find producer Wade Shepard's contact information in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate, since he and his colleagues are still looking for insights and perspective as their film comes together. In this particular interview, which is edited down from a much longer discussion, I talk at length about the history of work and social mobility in the context of travel. I talk about how nomadism was the original condition of mankind, and how our notions of settlement and global citizenship have changed over the years. I talk about how digital nomadism isn't just for industrialized Westerners, and how the desire to live a nomadic life is a universal urge that spans cultures. I talk about how to make the most of being a digital nomad and how to respect and learn from the cultures you live among as you move from place to place. I talk about how living a nomadic life changes your concept of home, but doesn't necessarily make you homeless. I talk about how digital nomadism is still in its infancy and will probably look a lot different in 20 years. Anna and I start by attempting to define what digital nomadism is. Let's listen in.
1: So maybe uh, let's start with an attempt of a definition. When I say digital nomadism, how would you describe it?
0: Well, digital nomadism is using technology to become more mobile and independent of place in a professional setting. So maybe it's different from travel and tourism in that it's not just enabling travel and international engagement, but it's about taking what might have previously be considered your home life or your work life with you on the road. And nomadism is the original human condition, right? You know, we were hunter gatherers, but digital nomadism, that implies that because of the digital age, we suddenly have tools through which we can enjoy certain aspects of home and certain rituals of home in such a way that we can live on the road and make money on the road in a way that's comparable to home and in some ways is superior to and maybe more enjoyable than home. And so you have, well, for years travel was travail. It was this very dangerous thing that you did if you were a merchant or a pilgrim or someone who really, really had to go to a place. But more recently it's become tied into certain class notions of mobility, that you were an aristocrat in the 18th and 19th century or you are a nouveau riche, newly middle-class American or European who certain, suddenly could go to these previously rich resorts. And in fact, there's some early travel writing is basically aristocratic people looking down their nose at tourists because here's these riffraff, these formerly working class people had access to uh, tourist places. Well, now that conversation has shifted so that maybe what would have been a working class person in the 1840s is now sort of a digital working class person. You know, they're not, they're not um, working in a factory, they're working in a digital equivalent of a factory. You know, they're working in, in, in an information factory. And because that is done in digital form, it doesn't require them to be on the factory floor. They don't have to be in a physical place to make their money. And so there's this idea of remote work Um, which only slightly predates digital nomadism, that you can work from home, for example. And I think there was a point at which people realized, well, if you can work from home, why don't you just make home Rio de Janeiro instead of Lafayette, Indiana for three months a year? Because that's much more beautiful and enjoyable and warm during that time of year. So I think the specificity of what digital nomadism is, is still being figured out. That in 20 years, what digital nomadism is will have a concrete reality that we can't even predict now. But right now it's the idea of taking certain professional tasks on the road in a way that technology has has enabled. It's enabled us to talk to our boss with the same phone call resolution as if we were on the other side of the city, but we're on the other side of the world instead.
1: So I think there's a question kind of like inherent in that definition and description that you just gave me, which is, is it going to go more mainstream than it is already?
0: I think not only is digital nomadism, whatever that means, going to become more common for the average Joe, but the average Joe will be also the average Mustafa, uh, who lives on the other side of the world. That it's not just your average American or European guy, But it's going to be the person living in a village in Sri Lanka who's looking at this digital nomad from Colorado and thinking, that's interesting. They're making money, really. And by the time that they're 30, they might be working in an international setting that we couldn't predict now. So I think absolutely, yes, digital nomadism and its manifestations are going to be more common, but in a global way, in a way that doesn't. Limit itself just to Americans and Europeans and what we see now as privileged people, but it's going to be people stepping in to this less place-based economy in ways that enrich their lives that might not involve a bottom line of a hundred thousand dollars a year, but it might involve a Sri Lankan bottom line of seventeen thousand dollars a year that is still way more mobile and way more global than their grandparents could have understood, and so. I think it's important to, to have a critical lens on what digital nomadism is, but I think we should admit that humans are smarter and more adaptive than we realize and that the way it manifests itself is gonna be so much more sophisticated than we can understand now. And the way it is sophisticated may not involve us as Westerners. <laughs> it may be these people who, who we now see as locals, who uh, will take some ideas from us and reinvest them into the realities of the world as it's developing now. And I think we we also live in sort of a man bites dog, sort of glass half empty media economy where we worry about things without realizing that humans have always adapted in certain ways. And I don't wanna be over optimistic because we have environmental problems that are huge. We have social disparities that are huge. But we also have human resourcefulness that has always benefited us. And it used to be that you lived in one village and you, you corresponded with someone from the next village over and maybe you married his sister to sort of solidify a business relationship. Well, now that's in a thousand directions, like I said, that we have resources that will make things scary, in a certain sense, as far as inequity and environmental problems, but also will create opportunities for people that we can't even predict now. So I think without being over-optimistic, I can say that there are good things that will happen that we cannot predict now, that will in turn create problems that we cannot predict now too, that there will be social and environmental and interactive and technological problems that will be invented by what are actually good, positive things. So. That's why it's exciting and confusing and why we're a little bit nervous, even as we are excited about the the phenomenon of digital nomadism.
1: Obvious questions and very practical questions that arise from this is what's going to happen to our concept of the nation-state, right? How are we (laughs) going to think about welfare programs? How do we pay taxes?
0: Well, you'd probably have to talk to an academic who can describe what wave of globalization we're experiencing right now. But the idea of a nation-state is pretty new. And that is the result of a previous wave of globalization. You know, the, the, the idea that you have this country, Italy, that is circumscribed by certain borders. I mean, what, in the 1700s, there was no concept of that. There was no nation state idea of Italy. So the nation state is, is we have to understand that that's a very new thing, that the idea that this country has these borders and we're going to march under this flag during the Olympics is very, that's totally, totally new. And it's going to change. Also, the idea of the welfare state or of social mechanisms or sort of taxing certain people to aid other people has a certain logic within the nation state. And as the idea of the nation state becomes more malleable, that's gonna to be tough because you know if you're from a place that has healthy institutions for like social welfare, welfare, like certain parts of Northern and Western Europe, if you take that paradigm and you go to India or Latin America and you realize that, oh, well, these rich people aren't actually paying taxes. And actually in North America, rich people often aren't paying taxes either. That those concepts that we idealize are being sort of hustled and hacked. And I think oftentimes you'll get someone who joins the Peace Corps, for example, they work in international development from the United States. They'll go to solve a problem in Nepal and they'll, they'll think, oh, I'm not gonna bribe the guy up the street. And the Nepali middle-class people will say, no, I'm sorry, I'm a middle-class person. Everybody bribes. That's how you get electricity on our street. You bribe this guy to make this happen. Now, that specific example, I'm sorry, Nepal, if I'm saying that bribes are more a part of your culture than they are, but the idea of an abstracted modern state where rich people pay a certain amount and poor people benefit in a certain way, that used to be a non-nation, that used to be religion. You know, you you look at the edicts of Islam or Christianity or Hinduism, and charity is a huge part of that. That it, that used to be not the nation state telling you that you pay alms to help people, that it was God wants you to pay alms to help people. It's one of the five pillars of Islam. And so if there's a poor person in your neighborhood, it's your duty to help them out. Well, now we have an abstracted nation state idea of how that works, and as we diffuse the idea of what global citizenship is as you are a person from Spain who might be working in Colombia well what is the nation state to you um and so that's another thing that i don't think we have answers for you know that something like a a Scandinavian country that has healthy um social welfare systems that made a lot of sense in the 1990s. In 2050, it might not make as much sense because your next-door neighbor's grandparents may have been born in Kurdistan and your cousin and his grandkids live in South Africa, you know, because we live in this this world that is less circumscribed by traditional borders. Um, and, you know, maybe that I mean, how long do you have to talk about this? But maybe there'll be a point at which fossil fuels will make it harder to travel, you know, Mm -hmm. that suddenly it won't cost $600 to fly halfway around the world because suddenly fossil fuels are very dire indeed and that we have to, you know, walk to the next village. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But we are at a moment in history where we are both excited and a little bit nervous by the idea of what digital nomadism is and how what it portends to nation states, what it portends to social wel- welfare and the, peop- and the have-nots versus the haves.
1: If I say nomad, like we think about Bedouins or Mongolian shepherds, and I mean, that's kind of like the first idea that comes up. Um, and these uh, people, this way of living was not always something that was associated with freedom or independence, right? I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts on that, where digital nomadism is taking that?
0: Well, it's interesting, I spoke in Kazakhstan at the Go Viral Festival, which is sort of the Kazakh TED Talks that was sponsored by the US State Department. I mean, there's, there's, there's reasons why it happened. One of the most popular panels, and you should find this online because you can, was the Digital Nomad panel, which I was on, which the Kazakhs loved because they have grandparents that are technically nomads, that, that nomad life in Central Asia is a much more recent historical memory if not a literal reality still. Um, My parents appeared on my podcast. We visited Mongolia 20 years ago in the year 2001, and we met um, Mongolian nomads on cattle drives who my mom related to, like the 12 year old part of my mom related more to this sort of country cowboy side of Mongolians than she did to a lot of people in America because they were living in ways that were familiar to her when she was young, that um, the settled, the, the settled lifestyle is actually pretty new, you know, that, that so many cultures we go to have a literal living memory of nomadism and we romanticize it. And it's interesting that a lot of the Kazakhs I met when I was in Kazakhstan are middle-class Kazakhs, but they have a very tender memory of, of nomadism that they're very positive about it. And in fact, travel writing is tied up into this because one of the great travel writers of the late 20th century is um, Bruce Chatlin, who was also obsessed with nomadism and the idea of nomadism and he talks in his book in Patagonia I think about seeing like a woolly mammoth skin when he was a kid and dreaming about other places. It goes back to that childlike Urge to, to visit other places. And so I think even as kids, even in industrial society, we dream about being nomads and we dream of wandering to the other side of the world where big animals live and where interesting cultures live in ways that we don't live. And so in a way, the settled life is sort of a losing battle that um, this nomadic lifestyle that has taken digital form is a postmodern iteration of the way we've always lived. And I think it might be a little bit dangerous to draw too many parallels between the Kazakh people riding horses across the plain. But keep in mind, horses used to be a technological advancement that enabled life to be more mobile in its own era, right? So maybe there are closer connections than we realize. And when Europeans came to North America, uh, Native American cultures were settled. In fact, what is now the Midwest, there were some big cities, but there was also, there were trade routes and interactions that nomadism in North American culture, when it was still indigenous, was very much a part of why it was a dynamic force. You know, that it isn't like we came to a bunch of Native American Chicagos and Nashvilles and made them into... European Nashvilles and Chicagos, that there was this very sophisticated blend of settled and nomadic life happening there at the time. And I think it's never going to be a neatly edged thing. There's going to be problems and some growing pains, but maybe there's an extent to which we are moving back to a more nomadic um, way of seeing the world. And in fact, one thing that happened when Vagabonding came out almost 20 years ago is that people said, yeah, but if I travel the world for a year, maybe I won't be able to get a job again. And I, in my book, I said, put this on your resume, put your travel on your resume. People stopped asking me that about 10 or 15 years ago. Since that came out, people have stopped being nervous about being less employable because of travel, because 20 years after Vagabonding came out, they are literally more employable from being more global. When I taught English in Korea, Korea being a, a was an industrialized country even in the 1990s? I was giving my students tools to be better global nomadic workers and citizens. I was literally making them more employable because English is the lingua franca, and I was teaching them vernacular English American, and I was sort of being friendly with them and putting them in, in touch with people I knew in the U.S. Even as they were putting me in touch with they, with people they knew in Korea, and so. Absolutely. This conversation, which is becoming even more multipolar in the 21st century, uh, involves everyone. And sometimes it's the people who go to the digital nomad compound in Bali. I've said that like three times, so I'll just stick with it. The people who go there and are maybe a little bit nervous that they're somehow not integrating with Bali or exploiting Bali to a certain extent, the Balinese are paying attention, you know, and that's also making them more global. And that the extroverted Balinese who suddenly have a friend now from Dusseldorf and from Wellington, New Zealand, and from Minneapolis, Minnesota, they're gonna have more data points as employable Balinese people than they would have ever dreamed in a more traditional life. And so it's, it's easy to forget how multipolar this conversation is. Um, and how, again, I grew up a fairly provincial Kansas kid who dreamed of other places, My nephews are physically more provincial than I am, but technologically, they're so much more global than me. My podcast theme music is electronica music that my nephew wrote when he was 17 and lived in the middle of nowhere because he had access to electronica music and technologies that I didn't have when I was 18. My other nephew is like TikTok famous, and I'm sorry, Luke, if I keep mentioning you. He's TikTok famous. He has friends in England. He has friends in Brazil, in South Africa, in New Zealand, because there is no border for teenagers anymore. You know, they don't care. If you're making an interesting video for social media, they don't care where you live. They're gonna watch it and they're going to engage with it. And they may learn a little bit about Kansas because there's a very Kansas point of view in his TikTok videos, but it's a way that might appeal to to a person who lives in Brazil or elsewhere. And he knows things about Brazil and Norway and other places that I had no idea existed when I was a kid. So it's funny, there's, there's this multipolar conversation and sometimes the conversation always happens at the cosmopolitan level of a the society. There's sort of a New York, San Francisco, Austin, Minneapolis-ness to this conversation. We're sitting in Kansas right now, which has a reputation for being a little bit more rural and conservative and sort of a hick state. I guarantee you every kid that's smart enough to be paying attention is paying attention. And they are way more global than their uncle, me, or their grandparents or anybody else was. And the corollary is that the kids who are in Bali and Namibia and Paraguay are also, the kids who are smart enough to pay attention are, and they're going to live whatever digital nomadism is, they're gonna live an iteration of it. Eventually. Unless we run out of fossil fuels or dissolve into global warfare. So as long as we have this current current stasis of technological peace and fossil fueled mobility, this will happen.
1: Or maybe we'll have to travel slower.
0: Maybe. But I mean this is that's part of my argument in in Vagabond. Another thing that happened early on is um, that I would get at events in Vagabond is What about fossil fuels? Vagabonding is bad for the community. And it's like, I guarantee you, people who live in the US fly more per month, especially if they're in a professionalized profession than they do as vagabonding people, taking the Trans-Siberian train, taking chicken buses from point A to point B, that there were years and months where I flew less in Asia than I would have lived as sort of a mid-level employee in a place like Kansas or Texas or California. And so, again, there's different kinds of, of privilege that we can talk about, but one is historical privilege, you know, that we're a lot more privileged than our grandparents and that our grandkids will be more privileged than we can ever imagine, unless they're eating the, the dirty crusts of us using all their fossil fuels. Again, I don't know. <laughs> Fingers crossed that we'll, uh, we'll, we won't ruin the world before. We're done exploring it.
1: One of the kind of like manifesto slogans of the digital nomad crowd is the world is my office. What type of person are you? What type of people are we talking about that say the world is my office?
0: So when a traveler or a digital nomad uses the phrase the world is my office, um, at a rhetorical level, I guess as scholars, you know, as people who believe language creates reality, we can try and break that down. But in reality, in, in truth, one person who says that might behave completely differently than another person who says that while they're living in Morocco or in you know, Argentina or wherever they are in the world. And so I think there is an extent to which the, if you say the world is my office, then you're sort of creating a backdrop for other cultures as sort of an office environment. You're sort of utilitarianizing the rest of the world. You're, it's it's sort of this, the world becomes this utilitarian backdrop for you trying to make a living, um, which can have its negative connotations, but it need not have a negative connotation. Um, and so I think you can go to another culture. You can learn the manners and the language to an extent. You can um, befriend your neighbors. You can um, learn to respect the traditions of the place, keeping in mind that traditions are always in flux, right? Right. Um, but then also there's a it's that that parallel will never stop being true. The king sends two envoys to other countries. One comes back and says, this country is great, the other one says, This country is horrible, the people there are horrible. The king laughs because he sent them to the same places, right? That will always be a problem. Digital nomad A will go to this point, this place, they'll be blasted drunk all the time. They'll be posting very narcissistic pictures of themselves on Digital Nomad. They'll have hashtags that are self-aggrandizing. Their next-door neighbor, who may come from the same town in the U.S. or Europe, will go and they will be interactive. They will learn customs and language. They will be respectful. They will create opportunities for local people. And I think that's what we're stuck with. Regardless of where we take this conversation, those two types of people, which itself is more simplistic than it is in the real world, those two types of attitudes will always exist. There will always be people who will be more extractive and narcissistic, and there will always be people who will be more generous. We have this digital nomad vernacular now But before it was just leisured vernacular, you know, that we learned to speak a certain way about travel because we weren't working, because travel was seen as something that was in contrast to work. And we learned, I think, we learned at a certain point that maybe rhetorically we should talk about cross-cultural interactions, because if it's all about your glass of champagne on the river cruise, then you're just sort of being self-centered. So as tourists, we have already learned how to take that conversation in a healthier direction. That, that travel is not just a leisured escape from the life you lead at home, but it's a way of embracing the world and, and interacting with other cultures. And I think the way we talk about digital nomadism is still pretty new. And so we use a lot of work metaphors that are specific to home, but work is suddenly in another place. And so we're talking about travel in ways that we used to talk about vacations It becomes a very complicated rhetoric because I think a lot of times a digital nomad may work hard and be respectful of their home culture, but on social media they're gonna post a picture of them in an idealized sense with a beautiful beach and their little hot dog legs with their laptop computer Um, because that's what people back home want to see. And they may internally understand how it works, but they're sort of performing a tourist version of their own digital nomad life. So maybe in a hundred years we won't equate being in another country with a leisured vacation and we won't demand images of leisure, but I suspect we always will. You know, that I suspect that being in a faraway place will always imply leisure, which used to be attached to a certain class and still is to a certain extent, but it's less aristocratic. It's more of a middle-class, class class mobility thing that when you post a picture of yourself in Sri Lanka, it's going to be a picture of you looking handsome on a beach because it's a travel metaphor. And so as consumers of digital nomad culture, we still sort of want to see that travel metaphor. We don't really want to see you doing your graphic design work Indoors in Sri Lanka, we want to see you looking handsome outside in Sri Lanka because this this all mixes together And it's all a very human thing, you know, that we we assume it's a Western centric thing But you know, the Sri Lankan who is working from Biloxi in the year 2070 is also gonna sort of be performing a cooler version of his life than he is actually living from day to day.
1: I just find it interesting this like idea that digital nomads think of themselves as hacking the system, whereas I think you could easily make the opposite argument and say, well, this system is hacking them.
0: Again, it's, it's like, where do you start the conversation? Because if you look at the way aristocrats traveled in the 18th century, by the time Thomas Cook, using the technology of railroads, was bringing working class people into Paris and places like that, they were saying, no, 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 this, this this advancement is bad. It was much nicer when we had these places to ourselves and we didn't have these noisy Americans and working class British people ruining our destinations. So there's an extent to which that digital nomadism isn't really about no mobility. Digital nomadism is about mass mobility. It's about it isn't about people working from a foreign country. It's about mass numbers of people working from a foreign country. It's not about this being special necessarily, even though on Instagram, we like to let people think that we're special. It's about this is happening in such huge numbers now that we have to acknowledge that it's not as special as we thought. And that it comes with the problems of any mass movement. When you, when you have a few aristocrats shredding through the streets of Paris, you don't feel like there's ugly Americans ruining Paris. Um, similarly, when you have A dude in 1999 with his dial-up internet connection wandering around Sumatra, it doesn't seem as oppressive as when you have 40 people from California setting up a workstation in this neighborhood and suddenly that makes you nervous. And so I really think that the the digital nomad conversation isn't about how special it is but about how normal it has become and how normal it will continue to become.
1: Yeah, So you could, uh, would you say that like the digital nomads that we see now, which tend still to be predominantly, you know, privileged Westerners, they're kind of like the aristocrats (laughs) of the grand tour in the 19th century?
0: Well, I would say that what we see now is the first wave of Thomas Cook's clients. This, This is the first wave of people who feel they're being sophisticated, but really they're the obnoxious people that the older generation of travelers are the get off my lawn people to mix metaphors, right? So there's people who in the pre-digital era, in the pre-vagabonding as I framed it, in the pre-vagabonding as a book era, there's people who traveled because they traveled and that's what they loved and it didn't occur to them that they would put travel on their resume and they made sacrifices to travel. Well, now those people who may be in their 60s or 70s are looking back and seeing, oh my God, you know this, this wasn't how it was for me. I spent an hour trying to call home. You're FaceTiming with your mom because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. And so the aristocrat generation of digital nomads probably predates digitization. Like If, if you want to stretch the metaphor, the aristocrats predated the railroad the corollary to the aristocrats are the people who predated the digital impulse the people who were traveling before smartphones and high speed internet who look back on this and say oh my god really is this this is this how it works travel felt much more organic and normal for me and just as we can't Which one is, what's normal? The mass movement or the aristocrats, right?
1: I want to jump to a different topic, home. I mean, travels depart from home, right? And home plays an important role also in making travel possible. And I wonder now what happens with this generation of digital nomads that are in a sense homeless, or at least that like to consider themselves homeless.
0: I think there will be an energy among young digital nomads that treat home as a delightful abstraction that they will never embrace. I was in my 30s before I realized that I sort of had to have a home, right? So I think the romantic homelessness is the privilege of young digital nomads. It's rare that you find someone who's 67 years old who've been homeless in a digital nomad way since they were 23. But I think. Sometimes we look at a phenomenon that is very fashionable and noisy because it involves young, fashionable, privileged people, and we assume that it will always be that way for them. Well, at a certain point in my career, I was a little bit exhausted by constant travel. I had lived in some digital nomadish locations in places like Thailand and Brazil, but because of my relationships with my family, for example, which is a lesson I got from travel, I learned that family is a universal wherever you are in the world. You could be in Kazakhstan or you could be in Nigeria or you could be in Peru and people find family important. So it was through conversations with my family that I ended up in Kansas, the least sexy part of the United States that also happens to be my home, that also happens to be extraordinarily affordable and it's just where I live and maybe it'll always be my home base even as I travel to many countries globally. Am I going to be is that how it's going to work? Probably not. Although, interestingly, this conversation is happening in the United States that people, they move to Portland or Austin or Brooklyn because they thought it would be cool. And there's a lot of fantastic young energy happening there. And then they fall in love and have a kid, and they realize they can't really live there very affordably. And so they move to you know, they move to Tennessee or to Eastern Oregon or a place that's more affordable. And so that, that idea of geo-arbitrage, the idea of living in a less expensive place because it gives you more experiential options, isn't just a matter of moving to Northern Thailand from Southern California. It's a matter of moving to Northern Kansas from Southern California. That, that There's an extent to which this mobility isn't confined by nation states. It, is, it isn't an international thing. And so the reason I bring that up is that I'm a person who, my digital nomadism manifests itself through the fact that I live in a super cheap place. Um, as, I, as I was saying yesterday, I've dated women in New York whose monthly rent costs more, they could buy them a house after six to 12 months in Kansas. And so, this economic disparity in the in the age of urbanism, um, it's not just an international thing. It happens within nation states. It happens. It's urban versus rural, and these conversations are as local as they are international. And so, I think this conversation is so complicated. You know, it's so complicated that w- what we idealize in other cultures, we ignore in our own culture until we realize that, oh, actually it is cheaper to live in the country. And I can have a much, I can have a beautiful 30 acres in a very quiet part of a state that I love for far less than a dirty apartment in a city that's noisy, if wonderful. And so that's, again, neoliberal means post-traditional in a certain sense. In a a post-traditional age, we have so many more options. That's an advantage. What's the disadvantage? We have so many more options, you know? Um, Yeah, there's a line from Michael Hare's Dispatches where um, Michael Hare is traveling with this soldier and he says, you sure should get some shitty choices in this war. And Michael Hare reflects to himself, well, actually you mean you have no choices. As a soldier, you have to take orders. Your, Your choices, shitty choices means no choices. I remember reading that as a young vagabonder and thinking the corollary, if you're not a soldier, in this newly global economy, is that city choices means every choice, you know? And the choice you make in 1994 might not make sense by the time you're in the 2020s. Um, and so that's the hard thing. You know, I think the surest way to make this documentary seem dated in the year 2030 is to say a bunch of resolute things about what this phenomenon is like. And I'm not suggesting that you're gonna make a prim little documentary about how this is, what digital nomadism is, and it will never change. But literally digital nomadism is about change and the fact that change is inevitable. So what do we do with that change? And glib answers are gonna be the wrong ones, you know? The, well, it depends answers are gonna be a little bit righter than the glib, this is all good or this is all bad type answers to that question. And what's fun about this project is that it is a core building block of 21st century life. Mobility is the new urbanization, you know, that that mobility is the new is going to affect how people live moving forward. For example, if you wrote, if you made a documentary film about cities in 1920, um, you probably would have had an entire episode about the epidemic of horse shit with all those horse-drawn <laughs> carriages, you know, all those horse trolleys taking people from one place to another. Well, who would make a documentary about urbanism that, 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 that considered horseshit in this day and age? So what is the corollary of digital nomadism horse shit. Like there's problems that present themselves to digital nomads now that won't exist in 50 years. And in 50 years there'll be all kinds of problems that we don't even we didn't even occur to us now. That's what makes this exciting and sort of hard to pin down. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including contact information for the producer director of the Digital Nomad film documentary. In the event you want to share your own digital nomad insights and experiences can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.